Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis and moral crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Bishop Rob Wright of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta about faith and our collective grief amid the pandemics of the coronavirus and racism. The Right Reverend Robert Wright became the 10th Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta in 2012. Since his election, he has been a vocal and active leader in the community, addressing Georgia legislature about gun control, advocating against the death penalty, and supporting programs for underprivileged youth. He teaches about the importance of love and of justice and continues to lead the diocese to be one of service and faith and always on the mission for the kingdom of God, the new order in Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today, my friend. Welcome to the Soul of the Nation. Jim, thanks. It's uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this. It's great to be with you and to have this kind of a conversation, especially at such an important intersection in our country's life. Well, you and I have always had good conversations, and now this one's recorded, so here we go. <laughs> so, so, Rob, let me start with just how's your spirit these days? How's your spirit? Yeah, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, like so many, Jim, I'm weary. Um, I, I think weariness in one category would be just sort of how life has moved online. And some of us are uh, suffering from Zoom exhaustion, right? Uh, and uh, and so there's there's that, trying to connect with people across this medium. And thank God for this technology. But nevertheless, the intensity of the work has gone up, even though we're not driving back and forth to offices and so on. So on that one level, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weary. And then I'm weary with some of these conversations. You know, I'm 56 years old, and it, it seems that I'm having to tell my three boys, uh, college-age boys, the same exact things that I, I was told as a, as a youngster about uh, this sort of precarious uh, relationship with uh, law enforcement. Thank God for law enforcement, but at the same time, be wary of law enforcement. So, so to live on that razor's edge is, is sort of wearisome. Uh, and it's wearisome to pass it on. And then on the other other side of the spectrum, um, you know, I'm I'm so aware now of the immense gift of faith. I, I really do get a sense, a renewed sense of how much faith is a gift and that we are we are called to sort of share out uh, this thing called faith out of a reservoir, which is not our own, which we did not build, which we did not fill. And so I'm I'm so grateful that I've, I'm I'm feeling buoyant and at the same time weary. So how's that? How's that for bifurcation? There you go. Well, the talk, as we call it, goes on that black fathers have to have with their with their sons. Um, and wh- whatever else about your bio, bishop, and all the rest, you're still a black father, and you've got to have that talk with your sons, and that gets passed on and passed on and passed on. And that's the problem. So you're a faith leader in Atlanta, a place that has drawn widespread attention in recent days. We're seeing Atlanta on our TV screens virtually every day because of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, because of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery 
and Rayshard Brooks. Um, in your statement on Rayshard Brooks, you say this, we commend Rayshard Brooks' soul to the loving mercy of our God and his body to the earth. We also commend his memory and unnecessary death to the conscience of every Georgian, every American, every follower of Jesus, and every justice seeker. For those who dismiss the call for reform in our policing as mere politics, exactly how high does the stack of bodies need to pile up before you lend your voice and strength for change? How are you helping lead your community through this deep grief of these losses of black lives made in the image of God? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that uh, people like you and I and, and, and baptized people all over the world and, and, and justice seekers, especially the, the Abrahamic traditions, you know, our brothers and sisters, what we've got to first do is, is sort of non-cooperation with evil, right? I think this is what the prophets do mightily and magically, right? They decide that we're not going to act like this is not happening. We're not going to decide... We're going to decide that uh, we're not going to participate in the cover-up. There are facts on the ground that run contrary to the sort of uh, uh, to the mythology and ideology that we we keep telling ourselves, and we're, we're we're going to talk about it. I think this is one of the first things we can do is get the conversation going, and uh, and and you know maybe because of uh, of COVID nineteen. Uh, we've been able to uh, focus a little bit now uh, from our busy lives and focus on what's actually ha happening. In, in the case of George Floyd, a man was publicly as asphyxiated, violently asphyxiated, you know, for, for the entire world to see, not unlike the public asphyxiation that happened on Calvary, right? And so we, we, we see this and we've got to speak up. And we've got to say, if the Bible says anything, it says that God and neighbor both are irreducible. Right, that there's a that God and neighbor is synonym, so it, it's in some ways not a black thing, and it's certainly not it's not a white thing. It, it's a neighbor thing, and and there are portions of the neighborhood that are suffering disproportionately, and and this has been our long standing uh, sort of a way to be in in the world as America, and and so what I'm hoping is is that this blood, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and this tragic, terrible, long list is, is that blood is crying out like in Genesis, that blood is crying out to, for us to take up action for it at, at the very least uh, to not participate in the cover up. You mentioned the virus. Um, it strikes me. I've been watching all this like you and, and been in the streets like you. And it strikes me that, uh, that, Maybe what makes this perhaps different or deeper is that because of the pandemic and the shutdown, we were all watching. We're all watching. And this public execution of George Floyd, it was, it was uh, that white cop knee on the black neck of George Floyd was seen around the world because we're watching more than usual. And so how does, how does maybe this, this pandemic, um, uh, you said in the podcast, your podcast for people, you stated God didn't cause COVID-19, but God can use COVID-19. How do you see God using this virus? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that the focus that we are all watching, the focus is, is, is perhaps, uh, you know, what has happened, this tra travesty, this tragedy is and it's so cavalierly done that the, the, the officer, former officer had his hand in his pocket. 
right? As, as, as people watched and as other police officers colluded, right? What I'm hoping that has done is sort of helped us to realize the brutality that happens uh, all around our country, all around the world day to day. And w- what I'm hoping is, is that the, the grief of that, right? The grief of that uh, is going to create some energy in, in, in people. Um, you know, what, what, what we know is this, um, you know, uh, brutal systems, um, uh, you know, they depend on the quiet of good people, right? I would go so far as to say they depend on the busyness of good people. And so we've been focused now because of COVID-19 and perhaps our own humanity has been, uh, uh, has been heightened a bit with, because of, so many of us are suffering. We're suffering disorientation. We're suffering loss. We've lost business enterprises. We've lost family members. We've not been able to make the, the personal touch. And so maybe we have a perfect storm now uh, to mobilize people uh, to, to make of this, uh, this wonderful country a more perfect union for us to actually live up to the words uh, that we hold up as our, uh, as our national aspiration goals. So the whole nation was watching Minneapolis and, and George Floyd. And then all of a sudden on a Friday night, they're watching Atlanta with Ray Sherrod Brooks. So you, you're there, you're in Atlanta, you're already uh, deeply involved in the movement going on in the streets. And then something happens in your hometown, Ray Sherrod Brooks. What did that initially feel like? Or what was that? That just changes it all. It's now right here. So it was always right at home, always at home. But now Ray Sherrod Brooks is also a national figure. What was that like to have that happen in Atlanta in the middle of what was already happening happening because of George Floyd? Yeah, the, the great Brian Stevenson said that all people really need to, to sort of get get sort of mobilized is is proximity. And and, and this happened in my backyard. I mean, these are people I know, right? I, um, I've, I've had a great relationship with a series of mayors here in the city. And the, the then chief of police, Erica Shields, is, is someone who I have great respect and great affection for. And in fact, I have uh, preached uh, the, uh, the police department's uh, uh, academy graduation twice. And so these are people I know. Uh, I don't know the particular officers, but these are people I know. And, and I've lived on that razor's, razor's edge between you know, affirming uh, good uh, police, um, police work and, uh, and also calling out uh, police work when it when it doesn't meet that uh, doesn't meet that bar, and so this was all very personal to us. And and what was so striking about the thing is is that the the conversation at the uh, at the very beginning of the encounter was so was so cordial, uh, even respectful. And then in a moment, um, we we had uh, a man running away, and we had him being shot in the back running away. And it, you know, th- there's a failure. I mean, there was a, just an absolute and tragic failure of. Uh, people being able to de-escalate uh, and get the situation back, uh, you know, back into control, and so it's it's very personal. And if it can happen in Atlanta uh, with our with Martin and Coretta right here, and and with our uh, long history uh, right here, then it can happen anywhere. And and it's always blurry and it's always sort of gray. Uh, but I'm I'm proud of our mayor now. She's uh, she has called for uh, radical reform. But what we've got to talk about is system. If we reduce this thing to a few bad actors, I think we missed the point entirely. What we've got to be honest about, right? And I think this is, we've got to increase our appetite for truth. We've got to be one step braver, braver in trying to figure out what is the truth here. And what is the truth here is, is that we've criminalized black bodies, uh, particularly male bodies. Um, we've made them dangerous, except when they're on basketball courts or football, football fields when they serve us. 
And so, and so what, we, what we've got to say is, is that what we've done is we've asked police officers to police the wall, if you will, as John Stewart says, between the haves and the have-nots. And so we've increased uh, the chances of these kind of Rayshard Brooks things happening and George Floyd's and others happening. And uh, I think we have to have all, I'm not for those who want to defund the police. I'm for those who want to uh, reform policing. And so we've got to increase the community's voice in what happens next. But it's, it's altogether tragic. And how many wives and children do we have to see mourn fathers and parents before we realize we really have a problem? You speak of the truth and Jesus' words come to mind in a moment like this when he said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So our freedom is literally at stake in whether or not we're going to know the truth, or as you said earlier, cover it up. Uh, it was interesting. You said, I know the people, you you know the police department, you've spoken at there, but you also know uh, the people like Rayshard Brooks, you know, young black men like him. And there was a powerful video that I saw that he did about being on parole and feeling like he's, you know, you treat us like animals. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, the people like Rayshard Brooks and, you know, the police, what, what's it like being a faith leader, a bishop who knows the people on like Rayshard who was shot in the back as he ran away. And then, you know, the police like this cop who uh, shot him in the back. How do you know those two people and how, how do we deal with that? Yeah. I, you know, Jim, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things we have not talked about and doesn't get talked about often is, is that when people like Rayshard Brooks, and it could be my own son, it could be uh, friends of mine, when, when you submit uh, to arrest, you really are taking your, you're putting your life in someone else's hands. So it's not as benign as some of my friends might think it is. I mean, we have a long, well-documented history of, of, of black males, especially being killed in police custody. And so, and so while I, I am uh, the kind of person who thinks that we ought to work uh, uh, creatively and cooperatively with good policing, I also recognize um, uh, you know, in that transaction between Rayshard Brooks and, and those officers, what else is at stake, what we haven't talked about. And that is, what does it mean to then turn around and give your hands uh, to those police officers in that moment, given the fact that there have been myriad abuses in your community? Um, so there, there's a dynamic there uh, that is very, very difficult to talk about. Um, it's for some, it's 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 open and shut. Well, you should obviously cooperate and submit. But I would I would dare say that a, a lot of people who make that argument don't have the very complex history with policing that people like Rayshard Brooks and his community have, that I have, that my children may have, as well, simply because of their color of their skin and their, and their physicality. So that's number one. Number two, what I hope is, uh, because I know people like the former chief of police, the mayor, uh, very, the, the governor, the governor's a member of the, the Diocese of Atlanta, uh, as well as people like Rayshard Brooke, what I hope it does is that it gives me an opportunity to articulate the shared humanity, right? And to not participate in this sort of tragic tennis game uh, that we're playing partisan politics back and forth. It's just not productive at all. It's not constructive. It doesn't speak to the best, uh, the best spirit, our best our uh, American uh, spirit of our documents. It doesn't speak, certainly doesn't speak to the best spirit of our faith. 
And so what I hope it does is that, you know, we don't get to easily vilify people. We have to stay in the middle. We have to acknowledge people's humanity as we work toward a solution. And so I would say to anybody, uh, you know, if you're sort of radically on one side, spend some time in the other person's shoes. What has helped me immensely uh, in my, my sort of understanding as it's evolved about policing is to do ride-alongs. Uh, to, to spend time. If we need reform, I tell you the reform we need. We need a better educated, better qualified police force. We need a police force that has more resources. You're looking at a lot of people who have a high school degree making $42,000 a year working 80 hours a week, right? We're, ta- we're talking about you know a bad situation right out of the gate who's asked to do a really complex task uh, task, uh, you know, in very heated moments when adrenaline can take over to say nothing of implicit bias. So I, I think we have the rest. And then you throw white supremacy and racism. That's, that's just in the air. You, you know, you really have a very, very difficult situation. Frankly speaking, it's amazing. We don't have even more abuses. Right. But these abuses are the canary in the coal mine for us systemically. And we've got to make the change. We've got to seize this moment right now. And so silence, especially by face leaders, is malpractice. Silence by politicians is malpractice. It does not serve the God of the Bible, so far as I'm aware. So you mentioned you raise the issue of faith as a bishop always should. Let's bring this to the church, because you're the bishop in a community where you know the Rayshard Brooks. You know the police system and the officers. You also know white Christians. In fact, Episcopalians are still in this country a majority of white Christians, and they're the ones who don't understand why did he resist? What you know? Well, he was talking with them for a long time, standing there. We saw that quietly, admitting that he'd made mistakes. Uh, they're just doing their jobs, and then when they went to handcuff him, uh, a lot of white Christians don't understand why he resisted. White Episcopalians, I'm sure, are asking that in Atlanta. When not only does he have that history, but he had just seen what happened to George Floyd when they handcuffed him and put him down and put the knee on the neck. The knee is is a system. It's a it's it's a culture. It, it's a it's an idol, and you know you and I talk about it as a sin, an original sin, America's original sin. So he's thinking all that in his mind as a young black man. Wait a minute, they're going to arrest. What are they going to do to me? Are they going to take me downtown and do what they've done to my friends? Of course, he was afraid and tried to get away. And how do we un, how do we get white Christians like your white Episcopalians to understand why? As you just said, he was naturally afraid as a young black man and wanted to get away. You know, I don't know. I would be afraid. I'll tell you that. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I personally would be afraid. I have degrees from fancy schools and a, a wall full of citations. I would be afraid, right? I, I, I have to confess that to anybody. I would, if I were placed into custody, I would have that specter of doubt. Am I going to make it? You know, my, my, even at a traffic stop, am I going to make it? Um, and, and that's with all the degrees. And, and so I think that one of the things we've got to do is, is that we've got to, uh, as Christians, we've got to make an extra effort, especially in the way that the world is sort of bubbled, if you will. Uh, we've got to make an extra effort to be in proximity to neighbor. I think, uh, you, you know, it's tragic that we sit at distance and we get the news from whatever our news source is, red or blue, and we think that that's the news. We think that, that those are that's the sort of exhaustive sort of uh, 
uh, list of the facts on the ground. I, I think, you know, what Jesus did was he wandered around Galilee and he went he, with special intention, uh, went to parts of Galilee uh, that he didn't have to go to. Um, and he went there and he sought out neighbor and he had engagement with neighbor. I think we might need to, you know, sort of go back to Jesus's playbook and, and not just to go back and to sort of, you know, make the sandwiches, though that's important or distribute the clothes, though that's important and all that. I think we don't know enough about each other, which is tragic to say in 2020. I, I don't think we know very much about one another. And I think the truth of the matter is, uh, uh, and, and Walter Brueggemann has put this so wonderfully well. I mean, we've become so thoroughly satiated. We really can't even empathize with people who hunger for justice, who hunger for food, who hunger for, you know, a non-biased advocate. We've, I mean, I can say that from a class standpoint, even as an African-American, my wife, well, my wife and I have worked hard and we have a few nickels to rub together. Our kids, uh, you know, our most, their most difficult decision through the course of the day is what to watch, not if they'll eat. Right. And so I think this is the truth for, for so many people. And so we don't really know each other. I think so what it, what it means to be a person of faith is to take up. I guess, even extraordinary effort to put ourselves in the shoes of other people, to get to know what must it be like. I think it's amazing to me that I've gotten so many text messages and phone calls, people asking me, and these are sort of born Southerners, right? Asking me, what should we read because we're standing at this crossroad right now? And so I want to be kind here. I don't want to be unkind, but I want to say that perhaps that kind of question at this sort of moment in our country's history is sort of exhibit A of the problem, right? What have we been paying attention to up until this time, right? Uh, how is it that we've been able to be indifferent, perhaps even numb, right, to what has been going on in our community? That's really well documented. And so I, I, I worry about that. I, I, so I think we've got to get some, some education. We've got to do some diagnosis, right? And of course, this is, this is highly complicated by all the partisan narratives, uh, that are out there. I mean, we can't even take a look at our country's honest record without people saying that to sort of to take a look at our record uh, is to be unpatriotic. I think uh, actually it's the it's the it's the converse. I think if we're not taking a good look at our actual record as a nation, then we're unpatriotic. To be patriotic is to be actively working for a more perfect union. And to do otherwise is to be caught up in some sort of uh, saccharine ideology, which is not constructive at all. You mentioned Brian Stevenson's call for proximity. Uh, Brian Stevenson, is, as people know, is, uh, you mentioned he's a famous lawyer before the Supreme Court, Harvard Law Degree, now the, Mercy, the movie Just Mercy. But Brian can tell the story of being put over a car with a gun to his head outside his home, you can, as a black bishop, tell stories about being stopped and pulled over. And if the church isn't a place where we can't find proximity uh, with each other, we're in serious trouble. You mentioned mayors. We, we put out a call at Sojourners for a, for a, a day of mourning and lament at the 100,000 mark, the death toll, the incredible death toll of COVID. And 60 mayors joined across the country with interfaith clergy to pray for the healing of the nation, not just for the sick and those who had died, but to heal the brokenness and the fissures that the coronavirus has revealed and laid bare, the unequal suffering of COVID. And that's what the healing of the nation would mean, not just from from the disease, this, this, this double pandemic that we're, is being exposed. What, what do you imagine our post 
coronavirus world looking like? How do you imagine? Uh, and how we in the churches begin to live out what we say we can imagine? How how do you imagine that post-coronavirus world? What does that look like? Well, I think on the way to a, a post-corona world, I, I guess I think what we've got to do is each of us have got to take another half step towards bravery, a half, a half step uh, towards fidelity. This is this at, at, at very minimum, everybody. We've got to raise the floor height, I think, number one. Number two, we've got to be uh, really uh, on the lookout for these two tragic cul-de-sacs that show up at times like this. On the one hand, a deconstructive and unproductive cul-de-sac of rage, right, which produces no life. And on the other side, uh, which is, which is um, you know, often uh, the cul-de-sac of the haves, uh, to end up in this sort of guilt and shame, self-flagellation uh, cul-de-sac, which again, also doesn't produce any life. So what we've got to do, especially in the faith community, is, is to talk about what is, what is sort of the road down the middle? What, what's the road that leads to productivity? And I, I think that, that road has got to be that our pulpits have got to repent and then now speak the truth. We've got to find the capacity to speak the truth in love. Number two, we've got to move away from, you know, uh, conscious or unconscious, uh, passive or active idolatry, right? We've made Jesus in our image. We've made Jesus sort of a white Scandinavian uh, member of the NRA who's from America. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible. We've got to reclaim the Jesus of the Bible. You know, this is the thing that worries me the most because, you know, what, what uh, you know, sort of what empire depends on is the silence of good people, right? And clergy, especially, lengthening and deepening the slumber of their congregants with a mealy mouth, pablum preaching Jesus. And this is what I think has caused a lot of the problem. People should be hearing from the church in a unified voice that now is the time to step out for justice. And we're not hearing that. What we're hearing is, is that anytime you quote the Bible or speak up for justice, you're being called divisive or political. Uh, and, and so I say we embrace that. I say Jesus was political because he was minded uh, about his neighbor and he cared about public affairs. He cared about the public square. And I say we'd be divisive in G the way that Jesus was divisive. Jesus talked about the difference between leadership and abuse. He talked about the difference between self-centeredness and other-centeredness. And so I, I think what we've got to realize in the churches is that we're going to be a remnant. We're going to be a remnant. Uh, the, the question is, are we going to be a faithful remnant? Or are we going to be an irrelevant remnant? Uh, I, I think this is the choice for all of us. And, and the truth of the matter is, and this is the hardest truth uh, possible, Jim, is that a, a generation uh, is going to have to, to go to glory before we get a, a real opportunity to restart this. What's exciting about this for me is to see so many young people deciding that they just cannot abide this reality anymore. White and black alike, gay and straight, they, are, we, they just cannot abide this reality. They cannot abide the sort of the unmattering of people. They can't abide the unmattering of neighbor. They can't uh, abide the unmattering of the planet. They have decided that, you know, now, right now. And of course, you and I know that across the Bible and across sort of the great pantheon of the people we call saints, they had a now moment. They just, they didn't think they were changing the world. They just thought they were sort of embracing their now with integrity. And I think that's the path forward for us. 
Well, Bishop, you've just given an altar call to to a post-coronavirus world. That's an altar call. And I hope people hear it as an altar call to faith, not to politics, but to faith. As we wrap this conversation, because you're a bishop, uh, you've just given this altar call. (laughs) Would you share a prayer? Maybe in this conversation, we're sharing a prayer, Bishop, for the soul of our nation. I think people need to have that kind of prayer uh, with the altar call that you've just given us. So could you say a prayer for the soul of our nation? Certainly, Jim. Thank you. And thank you um, for this opportunity to have this conversation with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, who we love but are afraid to love too much, give us the courage to cry out to you for healing. Heal our mind, bodies, and souls as individuals, as societies, as faith communities. Heal us, O Lord, more of you in all we say and do, more of you in all that we say and do. And for those of us who are Christian, help us, O God, to close the gap between your Son and our life, between your Son and our life. Give us the grace to close that gap. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, Bishop Rob. To learn more about Bishop Rob Wright, follow him on Twitter at xbishopatl and listen to his podcast for people at episcopalatlanta.org for people. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of a Nation.